We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Ooh, Don Palumbo. You did that on Don Speed. Was like, that Don Speed? That was, was Don it Speed. Slow or fast? Yeah, it, I don't know. Is like Don really Speed fast, fast? Really fast. Yeah. We are recording tonight with a record capacity audience at the Sanctuary Event Center, our home away from home in Fargo with our lovely partners. Jade presents a huge shout out to them for everything oh they do gosh. to make these yeah. shows a success. This is amazing. And a big thanks to everyone who's yeah. here with us. Yeah. This is our this is our largest in what, largest live audience to date. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah it's mm-hmm. it's only only upwards from here. So a big thanks to everybody here with us, and a huge thank you to everyone who takes a minute out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. I think these reviews go a long way, and we've got like an extra call to action. If you've been to a live show or you're here at a live show and you want to make a review, most people have yet to be to a live podcast experience in their life. So we would love to hear some reviews from people who have been to the live show and think it's really cool. Uh, we prefer the, th- those reviews. We get a lot of other kinds, too, some of those that well, you know, ones, we take some punches. Yeah. But if you've been to the live show experience and you want to write about it, we'd love to see that in iTunes. Otherwise, Don, I'm kind of curious, what are people saying about Midwest murder these days? Well, HP's G-Mother gave us five stars. So glad I found this podcast. It's 2023, and I've just found Midwest murder. Love the opening, the switching of primary hosts, and the banter. Thank you. You get a lot of shit for the banter. And I'm like, have you listened to other ones? Like, we're really not that bad. Anyway, she didn't <laughs> say that. I said that. I've binged from the beginning, only stopping to listen to my other saved podcasts. And most importantly, Don, you don't talk too fast. But I'm from New Jersey, and we're loud, especially when arguing. Thank you. <laughs> I love, I'm an, I'm you an, called an, yourself out for talking too fast, and then this girl's like, nah, you don't talk too fast. I'm, I'm an East Coaster, so like, I get... I get Loud, not quite shrieky, but I definitely get loud. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Awesome. And then, Thank you. Uh, I just, I never know how to pronounce the names. Janaba, uh, Jana, Jana, J A N A B A eight seven zero five. There we go. She gave us five stars. Fangirl, I love this podcast. I love how you ask questions when the other presents because I'm in disbelief too, or just want to know more. I went to my first live show when you were in Bismarck at the Luft and totally fangirled, so I didn't ask for a picture, but I'm hoping to get some courage before your December live show. Hope you have a safe holiday. I really hope we've taken a picture with her because yeah, I hope you got your we're, picture. I mean, we're we're pretty we're pretty normal. We have, um, there's Don like, bites once in a while. Yeah. It's, it hasn't happened in a long time. So if you get too close for a picture tonight, you might be the one. <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. He, I think. I think. You know what? After after four days on the road with you, you'd probably be the one. So, yeah, you're you know, not. That's yeah. It's okay no, though. We're it's we're okay. happy to take pictures. Yeah, I, ho- no, I hope you found sure. us. Thank you for yeah. that review. I mean, I I find a target in every random place. So I mean, I'm really pretty freaking normal. Yeah. Don really freaking normal Palumbo. That's actually her nickname in the business. 
really awkward Palumbo. Oh, thing. Yeah, it's, yeah, really it's, probably, it's a little more like it. In today's story, we're going all the way back to the year 1870. Sounds like I'm going to disassociate. Oh, yeah. That's what's going to happen. Okay. Back then, the 15th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is adopted, guarantees the right to vote regardless of race. The first motion picture was shown to a theater audience in Philadelphia. The U.S. Congress created the Department of Justice. Postcards were first used in the United States. The Transcontinental Railway was completed in Colorado. Ada Kepley becomes the first American female law college graduate in 1870. Also, Utah becomes the second territory in the United States to pass a law allowing women the right to vote. They were second after Wyoming was first in 1869. And the last Confederate state, Georgia, is readmitted to the United States. Interesting. America has long held an obsession, even a soft spot, for outlaws. For better or worse, we place outlaws in a position of respect and celebrate their spurning of authority. The outlaw has long been romanticized by society, from real-life examples like Jesse James, Billy the Kid, Bonnie and Clyde, D.B. Cooper and Frank Abengale, to folk heroes like Robin Hood, all the way up to present-day cinematic anti-heroes like Tony Soprano or Walter White. Outlaw life on the frontier was so fascinating that in 1883, Wild Bill Cody turned it into an entertainment extravaganza called Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show, where heroes of the American frontier reenacted their legendary exploits for audiences across the globe. Although widely considered historically accurate, Wild Bill's spectacle left out many of the grim truths of the frontier. Had Wild Bill chosen to reenact the horror show of the prairie's preeminent murder hotel, we might think of outlaws a little differently today. It's a story that might have stopped the romanticism of the outlaw dead in its tracks. Decades before Wild Bill's show, Kansas was shifting from territory to state. By 1854, that shift became violent. Kansas was central to the fight for the future of America. Would this be a free country or a slave country? The border of Kansas and Missouri saw intense guerrilla violence between abolitionists and pro-slavers, an era, an era referred to as Bloody Kansas. The war ended in 1864, but feuds, hostility, and violence lingered in the area. That didn't stop the region from thriving. Kansas, with a federal railroad working its way through the state, was bustling full of dreams. Sadly, during this time, indigenous people faced massive forced removal from their homeland. The United States did not honor its treaties, and local authorities' decisions over property favored white settlers, and tribes who supported the Confederacy were restricted even worse. Then, the land promised to the tribes was cut through by railroad and oil corporations. Fort Scott in southeast Kansas became an agricultural and commercial center. Protests against the railroad were crushed by the army, and Fort Scott grew into a gateway hub with connecting trains to New York and Santa Fe. Fort Scott was the start of the Osage Mission Trail, which ran through newly formed Labette and Montgomery counties, officially ending in the frontier city of Independence, although the trail unofficially reached further west. Now, for this era, 
The Osage Mission Trail was considered, quote, safe. And by safe, I mean that you also had a chance of being struck by lightning, freezing to death, drowning in a flash flood, getting trampled by startled horses, slicing your foot open on a rock and dying from infection, being eaten by wolves, killed by bandits, or even maimed by your own unreliable firearm in a backfire. Or the business end of a bayonet at that point. Yeah. Any Hamilton fans out there? You guys get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, safe. Yeah, uh, I don't think that's. I don't think that's safe. That feels. Because I mean, because because this area is still still being. The railroads I, are coming. I through. say settled, right? Like yep. homesteaders I, are coming in. Yep. Right. Yeah. Labette County, established in 1867, was every bit an outlaw county, close enough to civilization to be relevant, but far enough to be outside the law. Citizens beat each other to death or knifed one another over land disputes. Train robbers used Labette County as a getaway to disappear into Indian territory where they could fence stolen goods. In October of 1870, John Gebhardt and Pa Bender rolled into the Osage Township, a small settlement along the trail, so they could make a claim as part of the Homestead Act. Homesteaders paid a fee and signed an agreement to improve the land, which in turn granted them ownership. This was registered with a local rep who took the settlers out to choose from the available spots. Escorted by the local rep, Pa and Gebhardt selected a patch of land situated in a valley between two small hills locals referred to as the Mounds. Pa took his land in the usual 160-acre square, but Gebhardt opted for a mile-long strip of land along Big Hill Creek. It was a very odd choice, likely calculated. Big Hill Creek was a river that ran north and south across the trail between the towns of Lador and Cherryvale. So, if you're traveling the Osage Mission Trail, starting from the southeast is Independence on the Vertigus, on the Vertigus River. Traveling northeast from there, it's Cherryvale. Then when Big Hill Creek crosses the trail, still heading northeast, is the Bender Cabin, where they selected their land. Then it's Lador, Osage Mission, and finally Fort Scott, which is right near the border of Missouri. Am I, am I going to need to remember that map? It, it just paints it out. That's okay. the place. That's the trail. And it's like, it's only like, I don't know, back then it was hours and hours and hours. Now it's only like, you know, I don't well, know, like 90 miles or something. That was, on, that was on, you know, long, foot or horseback. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, of course it's going to be a little bit longer. So after bartering with one of the neighbors for a sandstone slab, Gebhardt went to Fort Scott for building supplies and Pa Bender stayed behind to initiate the foundation for a cabin and dig a well. Pa spoke broken English with a heavy German accent. He was tall, thick, angry, and unkind with piercing eyes. Gebhardt was slender with a mustache and relatively attractive. Now, Pa, real fun at parties. Neighbors came by to offer help when they saw him building. He didn't, he just stared at them menacingly and said nothing until they shrank away. Multiple neighbors. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. That was, that was how he interacted with people. He seems pretty cool. <laughs> I mean, oh my gosh. <laughs> The men built a basic cabin with a solid floor and a basement by Christmas. They also nailed a sign to the outside which read, quote, G-R-O-C-R-Y-S. Groceries. Groceries, I, I bet. They're trying. Or, or go cries. Yeah. yeah. Go cries. Yeah, go cry. it's, 
They're going to grow a lot of cries, I tell you what. Yeah. But the few travelers who stopped later reported there were no groceries to be found at the cabin. In March of 1871, Ma and Kate Bender arrived at Cherryvale, allegedly from Ottawa, Canada. Now, one of these women was clearly the brains of the operation because after their arrival, the sign on the outside read G-R-O-C-E-R-Y-S. Groceries. I mean, you know, a, a little smarter. I mean, it was, you know, it was, <laughs> the, 18, it was yep. the 1860s, yep. you know, so it's... 70s now, yep, 18, 72, well, yep. Give or take, then. <laughs> right. Know? I mean, you know, we, we, weren't, we definitely weren't learning in a schoolhouse at this point, right? <laughs> no. and, and, you know, all School that... School marms weren't teaching them. Right, yeah. and our, our entire English language is all made up bullshit anyway, so it's <laughs> like, you know, they're there and there, right? Like that was the I German mean, version yeah, of groceries. yeah. So Cherryvale's the town nearest the Bender Farm. It was modest, a general store, hotel, post office, and lumber yard with a, an official stagecoach that transported to and from Independence twice a day. That stagecoach arrival to, Cherry, to Cherryvale was the biggest happening every day, twice per day. That's the other thing about frontier living the grand stories didn't talk about. It was boring. Well, I mean, I think anybody can make that leap, though. <laughs> like, there was not a freaking thing to do. So the arrival of auburn-haired beauty Kate Bender was the talk of the town. She was effortlessly bedazzling with enchanting hazel eyes and a small scar high on her left cheek. Ma Bender's face wore a permanent scowl. She might even be the origin of resting bitch face. (laughs) Good one. Like Pa, Ma Bender spoke with a thick German accent in broken English. When the stagecoach driver offered his hand to help her down, she slapped his hand away. Kate, on the other hand, was jubilant, outgoing, and quick to smile. With Kate and Ma in town, the Bender Cabin Motel was officially open, a true one-star establishment offering a hard bed and sometimes a hot meal. Guests were only allowed to sleep inside during bad weather. You were renting an outdoor room? <laughs> yeah, like just, uh, yeah, yeah, in the, in the stables or some, some hay out in the yard. That was... You could only come inside if the weather was absolute shit. Oh my gosh, why do people do this? Like, I mean, I, I, I get it. It's 2023, right? Nobody's going to rent an outdoor room. Well, well I mean, I guess I, I actually wouldn't. You know what? Let's just move on because I'm just I'm talking myself in circles. And <laughs> well, and their, and their cabin is positioned as such that it's the last stop for so long. And so, if the weather starts to turn to shit, anything bad happens. Oh. That's all you got is the Bender cabin. So no one. So really, whether you want an outdoor room or not, tough shit. It's the last place that's you're it. Stay. Yeah, that's it. Actually, it's pretty good business. Well, yeah, yeah they made some pretty good business out of it. Let me tell you. <laughs> So Kate Bender immediately started advertising her skills as a psychic healer who could also speak to the dead when she got to town. So now nobody knew for sure how or if the Benders were truly related. Kate and Gebhardt often introduced themselves as siblings, but publicly displayed a level of closeness that suggested otherwise. Ma and Pa Bender rarely left the property, and Pa was known to chase people away with a hammer. Wait, wait, hang on, hold on. Oh, wait, and he's, 
He's the 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 thick one, right? Pa Benders, yeah. He's, he's the, the he's old. He's the thick. Yep. Not saying shit thing, right, guy? Yeah. Like that's him. Okay. So who's he get, menacing. He gives you the menacing stare, and you keep coming. It's the hammer, and you run. Okay. I, I guess I'd like to hear his reasoning, but still. He's too quiet. And then who's who's Gebhardt again? Gebhardt's the other man who showed up with Pa to help okay. build it. So okay. you've got Gebhardt and Pa, and then gotcha. Ma and Kate. Okay. So Ma and Pa Bender rarely left the property, but Gebhardt and Kate made friends in the community. At their first church service, Kate Bender wore a dress that showed her calves. Oh, scandalous. Oh. (laughs) What a little floozy. (laughs) Young boys who otherwise rarely attended church never missed a Sunday after Kate Bender showed up. You know, they were used well, to ankles, calves, boy. ankles at that point. You know, Woo. it's like, whoa. And then you see a calf. It's like, shoot, gosh, dang, I'm, he's going to follow her. Yeah. <laughs> Leroy Dick, sheriff of Cherryville, he liked Gebhardt. He figured, he said, Geb- Gebhardt's knowledge of scripture was really impressive. But Gebhardt had a strange, nervous tick. He giggled after every few sentences. It was persistent and seemingly came unbidden. Does anybody else feel attacked? And like, Gebhardt... <laughs> I mean, like, when did that become a nervous tick? Like, I mean... <laughs> when it becomes creepy and you do it just constantly after every three things you say. <laughs> and I'm giggling. <laughs> like, okay. And you stare at him weird with your big handlebar mustache and you're like, oh man, things are really nice over there at the Bender Cabin. We got my sister, she does spiritualism. <laughs> you know, just... Every, you, so when you think of Gebhardt and he's talking, this man, every two to three sentences, everybody that ever met him said that. He's giggling. He's giggling. Okay. Folks thought he was simple. Now, many who settled in the he areas thought, like... I'm sorry, what? Folks thought he was simple. Okay, well... And, and in their, that, terminology in their terminology of that era. Yes, right. using, using right. that era. We're, we're in 1872 here. Many who settled in areas like Cherryvale were emigrants with families still overseas. These people came to to America to work, open businesses, save money, oftentimes to send money back home to their families. One such emigrant, a man by the name of Earn, sold his stake in the Osage Trading Post and bought tickets for his foster mother and her daughter to come to America. He also proposed to the daughter. She accepted. Foster sister. Yep. Okay. Before making the trip, the women sold everything and exchanged the money for $3,200 in cashier's checks, which was kept along with their jewelry in a small metal lockbox. Earn arranged for the women to stay with the benders while he finalized their new living arrangements. (laughs) Yeah, you're going to hear a lot of that staying with the benders. Things went great for a minute. The ladies got along well with Kate and Gebhardt. Ma and Pa were quiet and awkward, but not bothersome. Then Kate asked the women if they'd like to go on a hike to search for the land for Indian relics. Of course they wanted the adventure. During the hike, Ma Bender had a coughing attack and had to return to the house. Nevertheless, the immigrant women experienced a new height of joy when they found relics during the hike. It was the happiest they'd been since coming to America. That was very short-lived. Back at the Bender cabin, their metal lockbox was missing, along with all the money and jewelry. They demanded to search the house. Kate Bender was taken aback and said, well, you can't possibly think we did this. 
Suddenly, things in the Bender house felt really creepy, dirty, dark, and uncomfortable. Ern's fiance started packing when suddenly Gebhardt emerged from nowhere and said, Horse thieves must have come through when everyone was out. It's not safe here. I'll take you to the Dienst farm. As with everything Gebhardt said, each sentence ended with an awkward giggle. And with that, the women were packed up and dropped off with no explanation at a neighboring farm. Now, this theft caused a major stir. Ern came angrily charging into the Bender cabin a few days later, and he pulled a gun on the Benders, demanding the money and jewelry. But as he stood there, Ern was struck by several sudden realizations. He was totally outnumbered. There was no proof or witnesses, and now he was the aggressor on another man's property. Ern backed away without incident. At church the following Sunday, Kate made sure everyone knew how bad she felt for Ern's family. The incident was reported to Sheriff Leroy Dick, and although he had suspicions, it was a plausible story, and there was no proof of theft. The situation... Well, and we're talking like $116,000 in, t- in today's of money, back money. Then. yes. Right, so I mean, this is definitely not pocket change. No. So, okay. I, I mean, I would be kind of pissed too. Yeah. Oh, I'd be livid. Ern takes his family, relocates to Texas. It's mostly forgotten until a few years later when a man came looking for his brother. We'll get to that. But by the end of 1871, the Bender Cabin was a popular stop on the Osage Mission Trail. And the cabin was grimy, as if everyone that passed through left a small, imprinted layer of filth. Inside the cabin was a single room with a small table and two chairs. The room was divided by a large wagon canvas. Guests were greeted with a paltry selection of goods, powder, tobacco, liquor. Sometimes there was a food item. The stock was really subject to the whims of Kate Bender. But the rooms are inside now. They've, so they're, they're taking, they're taking well, people inside? Well, when you get to come inside and shop for Grokris... Oh, Okay. There's just one, it's one room divided by a oh, wagon canvas. Okay, okay. One, it's a okay. one room cabin, wagon okay. canvas in the middle, gotcha. table. So you can, you really, can, you really can, poor stock, but they've got tobacco and liquor. You can buy your grocks, but you, yes. but like, but you have to sleep outside. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure. In spite of the filthy conditions, the farm saw no shortage of visitors. Most were drawn in by Kate Bender. As I said, Kate started advertising her services as a spiritual healer through word of mouth and in print immediately upon arriving in Labette County. Not only could she heal, Kate could speak to the dead. Allegedly, the benders were all spiritualists. Her circular read, Professor Miss Katie Bender, quote, can cure all sorts of diseases can cure blindness, fits, deafness, and all such diseases, also deaf and dumbness. Oh, God. So that that last one, the real seller. Right. And I know it's like 1870-something, but wow. Okay. Fine. I mean, I'm going to let it fly. And directions to the cabin. Yeah. Big promises. Right. I mean, so people are coming for freaking miles at this point. I mean, you, you, yeah. Wow. She seems super cool, too. No, just wait. She's going to, like, never mind. I'm not going to make predictions, but I feel like it's not going to end well. 
So I, I feel like we have to briefly unpack spiritualism in this era. So it, it was a religious movement that started after two young sisters, Maggie and Kate Fox, claimed they could speak to ghosts. Their older sister, Leah, turned it into a business. They held public seances and became major celebrities. Needless to say, it was all a hoax. Although plenty of spiritualists were debunked, even in that era, it didn't stop the believers. Spiritualism was a really, was a really big deal, and frontier people were really superstitious. First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln held seances in the White House. Yeah, they, they talked to their son. Yeah. yeah. I'm yep. sure some of these mediums meant well, but for the most part, it was a total racket. When the benders arrived, yeah, I mean, and, I think you know a lot of them probably were yes. were legit, right? But it was you know, but it was like, hey, let's look at what I can do. I wink, can talk wink, to the dead. Yeah, yeah, and pay me, yeah. So when the benders arrived in Kansas, spiritualism was thriving, and frontier people were totally superstitious. It's unclear if the benders really believed in the movement, but it is clear they used spiritualism to manipulate others for personal gain. Kate offered tours and lectures of the local region, inviting clients out to the prairie on misty mornings with the promise of contacting the dead. During these tours, she peppered in commentary on women's rights as well as her belief in free love. Son of a gun, she'd have me. I'd be like, here's my money. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Kate also worked as a server in the Cherryvale Ho- Hotel Bar. She was there for networking, and by networking, I mean prowling for victims like co-worker Julia Hessler. Infatuated by the spiritualist movement, Julia was smitten with Kate. See, like you said, she would have got you. She got, yeah. Yeah, I'd have been suckered in so quickly. Julia was quick to accept an invite to a seance at the Bender cabin. Instead of taking her own horse, Julia intended on staying the night, so she rode the evening stagecoach. When she set foot on the Bender farm, Julia noticed and a stench. It was inescapable. Inside the cabin smelled worse. Bulbous horseflies buzzed around, audibly thudding against the wagon tarp that divided the dingy cabin in two. Insects scurried in the corners. The smell clung to her throat. Hmm. And there was no light save for a singular seance candle. And evidently, Julia was the only person who signed up for the seance class. Awkward. (laughs) Yeah. Kate Bender was in the corner, whispering bizarre seance shit, promising it would be more (laughs) power. That's it. Kate's in there, bizarre seance shit's going on, making all these promises. It's going to be more powerful without non-believers in the circle. Things moved quickly. Kate clasped Julia's hands, started speaking in tongues, and commanded Julia to close her eyes. The smell, the flies, Kate's whispers, it was too much. Julia opened her eyes, and suddenly, Kate's family emerged from the shroud-like darkness. Terrified, Julia darted for the door. Pa Bender lurched toward her, something shining in his hands. Oh, he had a hammer, didn't he? He had a hammer. He was too slow. Julia escaped, stumbling as she burst through the cabin door in a panic. Scared for her life, Julia moves with exceptional haste. Bang! A rifle shot rings out in the night, followed by another, followed by the Bender family angrily swearing at each other in German. Any of, any of us in, of German descent, we know those words, right? <laughs> <laughs> the shots miss, 
and Julia runs into the night before the benders could stop her. Kate took a lot of pleasure in tormenting victims like this. Although Julia managed to get away, nothing came of her story because Kate gaslit her and spun the truth, claiming Julia got spooked during the seance. Neighbors figured, well, that's what you get for trying to speak to the dead. Just another weird story from the Bender farm. During the fall of 1871, Baxter Springs, Kansas was another booming railroad settlement in Labette County. The railroad was highly active in recruitment, distributing thousands of brochures, showcasing all the promise of frontier life, land, business, opportunity, making your own way. What these brochures excluded? Raiders, horse thieves, the benders, wildly irregular and dangerous weather events, diseases, and maybe even the possibility that the railroad would evict you from the property you developed that they gave you should the railroad decide they just want to put tracks on your land instead. Sure. They left all that out, fine print. They didn't even have fine print back then. And I'd also like to add, I mean, for those of us 90s kids who played some Oregon Trail, you know, shitting yourself to death (laughs) is one of those, right? Like, who didn't get dysentery? You know, I know it was, like, it was my, it was my character, Wanda. That's who got dysentery. Oh, man. So that railroad opportunity brought James Feerick, his wife Mary, and their baby son to Baxter Springs, Kansas. The Feericks were from Ireland, and James quickly got work with a railroad, who then sold him a homestead land near Baxter Springs, just to the north. James selected property near a family, the Wattons, a couple in their 30s with seven kids. Before James and Mary could relocate... And people said there's nothing to do on the prairie. (laughs) (laughs) Before they could relocate, relocate, James had to build the land out, during which time Mary and the baby returned to New York with family. The hopeful couple said their final goodbye at the train station. James kissed Mary and his baby then departed for the Watton Farm with their life savings. It was his final stop before setting off on the trail. Mary wrote to James the night she arrived in New York and never heard back. She wrote again after Christmas, this time to their homestead address. Still nothing. Mary's sister said, Yeah, don't worry. Frontier mail is unreliable and James travels for work a lot. Letters are easily missed. Mary wrote to every train station where James worked, But the railroad company was like, eh, sorry, haven't seen him. They didn't know where he was. They didn't care. Finally, after a few months, Mary received a letter from Mrs. Watton. She hadn't seen James since he left Baxter Springs on the Osage Mission Trail just at the start of bad weather season. Oh, which means he got to sleep inside. Oh, he did. It did. I don't think it went well for him. Summer of 1872. Even if the benders were weird and creepy, their cabin was the only stop for miles along the Osage Mission Trail. Gebhardt disappeared for weeks at a time with no explanation. When Gebhardt was around, he and Kate were usually pretty social with guests, always asking questions, making conversation, and most importantly, listening. They were masters of getting people to reveal information without realizing it, People traveling, info on valuables, money changing hands, homes left alone, poker matches, how many horses people have, a running catalog of possibilities. Jack Reed lived in the area and traveled the Osage Mission Trail regularly, mostly between Cherryvale and Independence. 
Jack was a layabout, a cowboy, a card player, a drinker, an occasional farmhand, and cowpoke. He didn't love the Bender cabin, but he sure loved the company of Kate Bender, which made the crusty cabin bearable. Reed had a particularly memorable visit one night when he expected to have an evening alone with Kate, but was suddenly interrupted by a pair of young men who recognized his horse and awkwardly poked their heads in to say hello, inquiring if they'd see Reed at poker the next day. Kate was hostile to him, and she refused every hospitality, even the grocris. And then she forced them to leave. When Reed turned around after saying goodbye, Kate was gone. He had no idea where she went. Minutes later, when she returned, Kate was distant and suddenly disinterested in Reed's company. After a few games of cards, Reed and everyone else went to bed. He could hear Ma Bender snoring on the other side of the wagon canvas divider as he fell asleep. Hold on. Hold on. Yeah. I think we all know what Reed and Kate did, right? Like, I mean, Reed was... You know, you know, do it, right? Yeah. Uh, Allegedly. On the other side of the wagon canvas divider. Yeah. Ma's, Ma's over there snoring. According to Reed, her snores drown out all the noise of the prairie crickets in the night. She was I out mean, snoring the prairie crickets. We've all been teenagers, in 1872. right? Like, we do some shit, right? It, like, it doesn't matter. So, At this point, he's an adult, though. Right. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Like, He's grown up. Reed's okay. grown up. Yep. All right. So Reed was suddenly awakened by the sound of a loud, rickety wagon, followed by the voices of Kate and Gebhardt. He couldn't understand what they were saying, but he heard a thud, followed by unnatural gurgling sounds, then Kate's agitated voice. Reed could still hear Ma Bender snoring, so he knew it wasn't a dream. Then two men began arguing in German. Reed considered investigating, but eerily felt as though someone was watching him. The snoring had stopped. Petrified by fear, Reed forced himself back to sleep. The next morning, Kate Bender was her usual pleasant self. She made bacon and coffee. Reed hastily gobbled it down and got the hell out of there. He played poker at the saloon that night, telling the story to anyone and everyone willing to listen. And everyone called Reed a coward, but he didn't care. He won enough money to keep going west, and Reed wanted to put as much distance between himself and the Bender cabin as possible. By the end of summer 1872, Kate was now a full-time spiritualist with private and public clientele. She even landed a residency at a local boarding house. Kate was flirtatious and really popular until she threatened to curse the audience if they didn't pay up a little more. That's how I got a martini earlier. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Because you're just so damn attentive and sweet. Thank you. Yeah. So Gebhardt came and went while Kate carried on with spiritualism. Ma and Pa Bender kept running the grocery store, which was strange because the old couple seemed to hate literally every customer that walked through their door. (laughs) Locals avoided the cabin almost entirely, but plenty of wayfaring strangers continued visiting. Crime in the region was often blamed on railroad towns, and for every strange frontier rumor about the Benders, the newspapers were printing stories of actual crime and murder. 
In October of 1872, a couple of kids fishing on the river off the Osage Mission Trail found a dead body. The side of the head was a smashed, pulpy mess of bone and brain, and a gaping slash across the neck made what was left of the head bob awkwardly in the water. Dude. It was a brutal murder, and an inquest determined the body was in the river for approximately six days. A description of the body was printed in newspapers, turning up a heartbroken widow, Martha Jones. The body was her husband, William Jones, father of three. At the time of his disappearance, William had $250 in his possession, the money to pay for their homestead. Now, Martha and the kids were facing destitution. William was a well-liked, good, honest man, and people wanted justice. So with no suspects, the inquest blamed the property owner for the murder of William Jones. Under major scrutiny and facing a noose slung over a tree branch, the property owner, Rudolph Brockman, became a witness when he explained hearing a strange, rattling wagon in the odd hours of the night on the week of Jones's disappearance. And his story checked out. There were tracks matching a wagon that would have had an offset wheel from carrying loads that were too heavy. The wagon made a distinctive track and equally distinctive noise. Was the extra heavy load Paw Bender? Because I feel like that might be... <laughs> Paw Bender, Paw Bender, Paw maybe, Bender a, yeah. maybe, maybe a couple bodies. Oh, right. That makes more sense. Yeah. The discovery of William Jones reminded people of earlier that spring when the mangled body of a man with a skull crushed in from behind was found at a campsite in Labette County. The corpse was little more than a shredded mass of flesh and bone. The lower jaw was missing and the body clearly gnawed on by various animals, making it impossible to identify. As the fall of 1872 ended, and winter began, disappearances along the Osage Mission Trail blew in with the wind and snow. But disappearances didn't capture headlines because there was never explicit evidence of foul play. Just a few months after William Jones went missing, three more travelers vanished on the trail. Newspapers blamed the railroad town of Lador. Locals blamed a band of crazed horse thieves. Leroy Dick, the acting sheriff... Blamed happenstance and bad luck. He received numerous letters from frightened people whose family went missing. Dick didn't want to admit how bad it really was. His stance? The prairie's dangerous, and some men just want to disappear. Plus, if, it was, if, if it's horse thieves, well, they'll move on eventually. In November of 1872, however, Leroy Dick's own cousin, Henry McKenzie, went missing after setting off on foot toward independence. Henry McKenzie was a total badass. He was tall, strong, and lean, a skilled fighter and a veteran of the Civil War. McKenzie was outlandish and boastful, so Leroy Dick didn't particularly, particularly like him. So along the trail, McKenzie stayed one night with J.H. Sperry, setting off in the afternoon the following day, never to be seen again. And Leroy Dick never bothered to check if his cousin made it to independence. 
Then there was Benjamin Brown, who disappeared after setting off on the trail with 50 bucks in the hope of getting a loan to help build a home for his wife Mary and their two children. Brown traded horses in Lador with a man who later recognized the sterling silver ring on Brown's finger. When Benjamin didn't return, Mary set off to find him, but the trail went cold at Lador. On the return home, Mary stopped at the Bender cabin. Kate greeted her and made a great show of concern for poor Benjamin. Mary Brown felt encouraged by the hospitality and the kindness, but sweet Mary had no idea Kate was likely the last person to see her husband alive. Irishman William McCrotty, a tough-as-nails veteran, traveled to the prairie from Illinois in hopes of a homestead. As previously outlined, there were occasional violent disputes over land, so McCrotty enlisted the help of, of an old friend to secure his claim. But McCrotty never showed up to meet with his buddy. He stopped in Lador, where a local gave him 25 cents for dinner and suggested the Bender cabin. McCrotty was never seen again. Another young man, John Phipps, his body mutilated by wild hogs, was found in a frozen prairie field. John Phipps left home with $300. But for every story like this, there were hundreds of folks traveling without issue. Unfortunately, the stories kept getting darker. George Longcore started his life as a homesteader in Kansas in early 1870. In just a few years, he built a home, married, had two children, a son and daughter, and became a pretty successful blacksmith. But life on the frontier is unforgiving. George's son died from lung disease before the age of two, and his wife died in January of 1871, following the birth of their daughter, Marianne. George raised Marianne and blacksmith for nearly two years until he was finally convinced by family to relocate to Iowa. George sold everything, bought a sturdy wagon from his good friend William York, packed up their belongings, and started the journey along the Osage Mission Trail on a brisk December morning in 1872. Little Marianne was wearing a bonnet and mittens knit by her mother. Two days after, long, uh, after the Long Corps departed for Iowa, another group had a bizarre interaction at the Bender cabin. John Handley, his friend, and their dog stopped at the cabin on a bitter cold day. Inside, the Benders had only a tiny one-log fire burning and no hot supper. Kate was openly displeased when the men came in, and she lingered close to the canvas and told them no one is cooking but you could buy something, and the room felt unusually tense. Suddenly, Hanley's dog burst through the back door, being chased by Pa Bender. The old German was wielding a club. Pa and the dog popped out from behind the canvas. Hanley managed to grab the dog, drag it outside, and get it settled in the wagon. When he returned, Gebhardt was arguing, arguing with his buddy over firewood, loudly repeating, if you want fire, you buy extra wood. <laughs> Punctuated each time by his strange giggle. This is, this is going to be almost as creepy as that, you know, it's just so, so cute. cute. If you start giggling, this is over. Things yeah. were feeling hostile. So, in spite of the blistering negative five degree temperatures, Hanley made the decision to leave. When he looked back at the Bender cabin... All light was extinguished. 
Nightfall was, had settled in. If you didn't know the Bender cabin was there, you sure as hell couldn't see it in the night. Back at the cabin, behind the canvas, little Marianne Longcore was fast asleep, still innocently wearing her mittens, unaware of her father's demise, and helpless to prevent what would come next for her. When the ground was too frozen for grave digging, the benders tossed their victims below the cabin through a trap door where they were left to bleed or rot. The disappearance of Marianne and George Longcore was the tipping point in a series of events that dropped a stick of dynamite into the frontier. After learning of George's disappearance in a letter sent by a family in Iowa, William York felt obligated to investigate. That's who he bought the wagon from. William was a beloved regional physician, and his family was well-established in independence. William's brother, Alexander, was a renowned politician who'd gone head-to-head in massive bouts of political theater against the current establishment. William, on the other hand, was formerly a Civil War field doctor in charge of several hospitals. He was captured and managed to survive inhumane conditions for nearly a year as a prisoner of war. He was marched for 380 miles with no shoes through prairies, swamps, and mountains. Men were hung, tortured, and died of disease every day. William York witnessed the abominable horrors of the Civil War and lived. So you can understand the sense of obligation he felt to find out what happened to his friend George Longcore. It was March 3rd. 1873, when William York set off to investigate, assuring his wife he'd return by March 18th. York read in the paper there was an abandoned wagon found near Moorhead. It matched the description of the one he sold to George. William ID'd the wagon and immediately suspected foul play because the wagon was so far off course. From there, he pressed on to Fort Scott, the start of the Osage Mission Trail. In Fort Scott, William purchased an expensive, well-tempered horse. York planned to stop at every homestead on the trail to question residents before gathering a larger force to extend the search. William made it at least 45 miles to the town of Osage Mission. The last family to see William York was that of J.M. White, and they were delighted to have the brother of Senator York in their home. William left before sunrise, without saying goodbye. Now, when William didn't show up back home, things escalated quickly. Finally, someone was going to take some action. The aging York father hopped on the first train to Independence, alerted the sheriff, and sent word to the youngest York brother, Edward, to hire a detective and come at once. Meanwhile, in early 1873, the Benders continued their descent from community favor. So one of the really not so popular things Kate did when one of their neighbors would have a family member or a loved one die, old Kate would show up and be like, hey, want to talk to your dead relative? I think you mean beautiful Kate. Yeah. Like she was pretty Kate. So yeah, like very, a, very beautiful Kate. Right. But she's like, hey, yeah. Come on over. All you got to do is pay me, hang out in my crusty, creepy ass cabin, that, and we can talk like to your death. and we can talk to your dead husband or sister or whoever it might be. Yeah, yeah and she was really popular. Yeah. In April of 1873, one week after William's disappearance, a band of 65 to 100 men started off from Independence. 
The youngest York brother, Ed, was leading the group along with the higher detective, Detective Beers. Ed York was barely short of bloodthirsty in his pursuit of information related to William's disappearance. William was easily tracked along the trail, but when the trail went cold, the group arrived in the town of Lador, full of suspicion. After all, regional newspapers had long blamed crime on the nefarious outlaw town. This led to an intense confrontation with local saloon owner James Roach after Ed accused Roach of killing William. Things got intense. Alexander York questioned James Roach and eventually cleared him. But this standoff was one misplaced fart from violence. We've got to be proud of that one, I'm sure. I bet, he went, when, I bet when he was writing this one, he was like, oh, this is going to be a good one. Uh, ch- <laughs> channeling, channeling my inner Uncle Turdman there. Fart, fart jokes are funny, yeah. so I get it. Yeah. The drama following William York's disappearance cannot be overstated. Newspapers went bananas with the story. This was a celebrity that was missing, and it was the only topic for discussion in the frontier. The private detective, Thomas Beers, uncovered information detailing a sighting of William near Big Hill Creek. This really narrowed the search, and the closer they got, the more volatile Ed York's moods became. At this point, Alexander York decided to connect with a local authority, Sheriff Leroy Dick. Now, this was a chance for Dick to redeem himself for previously downplaying the disappearances. Although, 50 years later... O'Leroy would recount the story to to a reporter and make himself out to be the central figure in the investigation, conveniently omitting his prior nonchalance. I'm I'm feeling like, you know, Sheriff Leroy was very Barney Fife of his day, right? (laughs) Like, you know, just... Well, he liked Gebhardt, so, you know... When the, when the York party connected with Leroy, it was Ed York who asked him, quote, are there any persons or families in this area suspected of crimes? That's when Leroy told them about the benders, the unproven robbery charges, the peculiar stories, Kate's activities as a medium. Alexander didn't want to show up at the cabin with his angry brother in a half-drunk search party, so... York, Detective Beers, and Jim Buster went to the cabin while the remainder of the group was ordered to search along the river. Now, I gotta give it up to Alexander York. He played it really smart. He arrived at the Bender cabin not as an interrogator, but as a customer, asking Kate to contact his missing and presumed dead brother so that searchers could find the body and lay him to rest. When Kate Bender started making excuses as to why it wouldn't work and why she couldn't do it, old Jim, old Jim Buster leaned forward and called, Bullshit. <laughs> now that sent Ma Bender into a fit of rage, oh, a coughing a, attack. She oh. wasn't snoring in the, like, behind, like, beyond the... No, she raged out. And just then, that's when old Gebhardt popped in, declaring... I got shot at near the creek where a body was found. (laughs) Do you want me to show you the spot? This fucking creep is always (laughs) popping out. So Gebhardt made quite the impression, but not the murdery kind. En route to the creek, 
They were met by Ed and the larger search party. The men were drunk, and they started harassing Gebhardt, but he was totally unruffled, just kept giggling and chatting and speaking in his German accent, constantly peppering it with his weird laughs. The search party just assumed he was simple and left him alone and rode toward independence. Detective Beers was suspicious of the benders from the start, he watched like a hawk as Alexander York interacted with Kate and Gebhardt. In his mind, Beers noticed hesitancy and anxiety from the benders when York mentioned his missing brother. But Alexander York just thought the benders were strange, simple country folk, and he didn't want to be responsible for inciting a lynch mob on an innocent family. Then Leroy Dick suggested deputizing a group to thoroughly search every homestead cabin in the vicinity. Alexander York drafted a letter to the governor. It was signed by 63 prominent citizens demanding a reward for the apprehension of those bandits responsible for lawlessness in the region. The governor responded within days, offering $500 per head. But before that letter was ever signed or received by the governor, hell, before Beers, York, Leroy Dick, and the others could even gather their thoughts at independence, the Bender family was on the move. Ma, Pa, Kate Bender, and Gebhardt tore off the very same night after the confrontation with Alexander York and his crew. Gebhardt pushed the horses to the outskirts of a little town called Thayer, where the wagon and horses were abandoned. The group was noticeably in a hurry and made some fuss between them, as witnessed by the clerk at the station, a dog had followed them into town. When they got on the train, before it took off, the dog got booted off with a yelp and the train went. Probably better for the dog. You'll find out in a minute why. Well, I can't imagine. Oops. I can't, and I, I can't imagine they were nice to animals. I mean, they didn't yeah. have any compassion for humans, let alone yeah. animals. Oh, yeah. Just wait. Now, Pa Bender purchased four tickets for Humboldt, which had connecting trains to Missouri and Texas. During the trip, they made plans to split up. Ma and Pa to Missouri, Kate and Gebhardt to Texas. Witnesses saw the Benders eating breakfast at the Sherman House Hotel in Chanute when the train stopped along the route to Humboldt. Kate and Gebhardt then purchased tickets for the Missouri-Kansas-Texas Railroad. On April 8th, a community audience was held to publicly address the disappearances. All kinds of frontier folk, high and low, were at the Harmony Grove schoolhouse where the meeting took place. Leroy Dick noted the absence of the benders, but chalked it up to their antisocial tendencies. Dick addressed the crowd, outlining what had transpired over the last six months. Eight men, officially, and one little girl were missing, and two of those men were found dead. It was eventually agreed to deputize a search group that would systematically check everyone's land and property. Dick assured the community that government help was coming soon, and folks left the meeting with a sense of hope and purpose. On April 9th, Detective Beers reported that an abandoned wagon was discovered outside Thayer. It was poorly kept with damaged rear wheels. Among the scattered remnants inside the wagon, a double-barrel shotgun loaded on one side with buckshot on top of common shot. Beneath the gun, a wood plank with crudely written letters spelling G-R-O-C-R-Y-S. It's, it's the Grow Cries family. That's nice. But when the, wagon was when the wagon discovery was printed in the papers, nobody made the connection. 
and it was presumed another traveler was killed somewhere along the Osage Mission Trail, and probably somebody took his grokris. How did, how did they not make that connection? I mean... I just, it slipped, slipped through the cracks. Hmm. Lack of, I don't know, interagency communication, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Search groups started by mid-April, but the efforts were agonizingly slow because of torrential downpours and gale-force winds. It wasn't until the first week of May that anything of relevance was discovered. Young Billy Toll, a teenager, was out on the trail looking to corral a few animals that got loose during a storm. This brought him close to the Bender cabin where he heard a cow crying for help. Billy found the animal on her side in the field gasping oh, for air. I don't, I don't like this. The cabin itself was eerily quiet. Aside from the buzzing of flies, the surrounding land was more unkempt than usual. An acrid smell clung to the air. Billy Toll found a dead calf oozing with maggots inside the stables. A horde of flies swarmed inside. Piles of manure and dirt were everywhere. Billy worked up the courage to peek inside the cabin, but he was too afraid of the smell to actually go all the way inside. Now that's a scary fucking smell. Well, I mean, it's the smell of death. He doesn't he thinks it's just dead animals. So Billy galloped back to town to tell everybody what he, what he found. It was May 5th when Leroy Dick and the search party went to the Bender cabin. Hold on. How, how long did this take? Like, uh, you know, three days to get back? Or like, <laughs> I mean, what was the time frame between between An hour. Billy? Like, he, he galloped oh, okay. back. Yeah, so that was like okay. May 4th. It was like May 4th, yeah. Okay, um, I wasn't sure. I was like, uh-oh. Like, I mean, it takes three days to get anywhere on horseback. They're moving a little quickly here. <laughs> sure. All these, all these things are like within a handful of miles. Like, it's, but it's still a long time on horseback, of sure. course. So. Yeah. Yeah. It was May 5th when Leroy Dick and the search party went to the Bender cabin. The wretched stench of death dominated the cool spring air. It was a smell not unknown mm. to Civil War veterans in the search party. Clearly, the Benders had been digging. The men spread out to search the property. The cabin itself was small. One room divided by a wagon canvas. The rancid odor was worse inside. Sheriff Dick found three hammers carelessly hidden under the stove. A three-inch claw hammer, another like it only longer, and a handmade five-pound sledge. He also noticed what appeared to be several bullet holes in the walls and ceiling of the cabin. There's very little furniture, and it was clear the benders left quickly. A disheveled Bible and straw mattress were moved aside to reveal a trap door. That was behind the wagon canvas. When Leroy Dick pulled it open, the noxious odor stung the eyes and throats of the searchers. Silas Toll, an old rancher, accustomed to the smell of animal carcass, volunteered to descend into the hellhole of stench. It was difficult to breathe. Choking as he went down, Toll found the floor below was a sandstone slab, unnaturally stained red. Dear. There's little they could do without better access to the cellar, and it was decided the cabin must be moved. Using horses, pulleys, and manpower, the cabin was shifted off the cellar. Daylight had faded by the time the cabin was moved from the foundation, so further search had to wait until the next day. So get this, and I didn't plan this, I wish I was that cool, but get this. (laughs) 
That search of the Bender cabin began on Monday, May 6th, 1873, 150 fucking years to the day of this recording. Wow. (sighs) If that ain't synchronistic that says that I should be here and you should be here and holy shit, I don't know what is, but wow. I'd also like to point out how fast they're moving. I mean, they're they're moving this cabin like they the move, next yeah. day. Oh yeah, like they're getting wow. it going. Wow! So they begin the excavation. Once the cabin was moved, the discolored limestone slab had to be broken with sledgehammers and hauled out so searchers could dig into the soil underneath. Oh, the was... death stench grew stronger with every plunge of a shovel. A smell of human decomposition that was inescapable. Okay. By midday. I'm sorry. It's in your throat, your nose, your eyes, your ears are feeling it. Why? Why would they have buried these people underneath their home? Well, maybe they didn't. Maybe they just bled and rotted there until they got relocated. We'll see. We'll see. There's a lot to uncover here. Man. By midday, searches were turning up nothing but stink and suspicion. By now, Families from all over the region were showing up to watch. A crowd of onlookers murmured with anticipation as Ed York came rambling up angrily in a wagon. Ed became the center of attention, which he didn't want. He also wanted no part of the smelly dig, so he decided to search the cabin. Inside, Ed found a bridle belonging to his brother wedged behind the counter, Ed York also noticed the clock on the counter had not been wound for three weeks. Daylight is fading when Ed emerges from the cabin and stares off into the orchard. His eyes catch a glimpse of disturbed ground. The call rings out, bring your spades quickly. In moments, the true hellscape of the Bender farm would be revealed. Detective Beers slides a ramrod from his rifle and hands it to Ed. Emotional and reluctant, it's nearly sunset when Ed plunges the ramrod into the soil until it connects with something too soft to be the earth. Pulling it back out releases the pungent scent of death. The ramrod is slick with human viscera. Dude. As the men start digging, they switch off every few minutes because the smell is so horrific At five feet down, a torso is discovered. Ed hurls himself into the hole, pushing away dirt and filth to finally reveal the face of his brother. Ed lets out a burst of anguish, and Detective Beers announces to the onlookers that the body of William York has been found. A beloved figure in the region, the announcement sent a wash of despair over the crowd. William York's skull was crushed from the backside. His body, haplessly tossed into the grave in only an undershirt with a bandage around his knee. When the body was fully excavated, a massive laceration across William's throat was also revealed. The hammers found by Leroy Dick matched the impressions in William's skull. By now it's nightfall. Further digging had to wait until the next day. And the bad news spread across the frontier with lightning speed. Compared to the slog of daily life in the frontier, bad news was entertainment. Right. Folks knew, people knew bandits and raiders were a danger, but the idea that a family had set up a murder B&B on the prairie was downright shocking. 
And it finally clicked that someone should check the abandoned wagon near Thayer. And sure enough, a neighbor confirmed it was the Bender wagon. The next day, Leroy Dick practically had to fight through the crowd on his way to the crime scene. Local authorities are trying to set up a perimeter. Picture this. You're on a nice prairie trail that passes through a lightly wooded area. There's a river nearby and it's beautiful. Then you start to catch a whiff of something foul. You come around and see a misshapen, disheveled cabin that looks like it grew out from the earth and gathered in the orchard are people and their families. Small children are playing in this field of death as their parents watch in captive horror. Hardened frontier men are gagging and crying while working to dig out more bodies. Henry McKenzie was the next one excavated, found much the same as William York. His skull shattered in three places, the same vicious cut across his throat and wearing only his undershirt. McKinsey's arms were a patchwork of defensive wounds. It was later theorized by Leroy Dick that the many bullet holes found in the walls and roof of the Bender cabin came from Henry McKenzie. The discovery of McKenzie's body was the opening act of the horror show. When William McCrotty was found, people were furious. Mackenzie and McCrotty were carrying nothing of considerable value at the time of their murder. The senseless brutality had people seething. The local doctor, Keebles, put forward a theory as to the Bender M.O. Solo travelers were invited in, fed a meal, and then entertained by Kate Bender while their back was to the canvas. The candlelight perfectly illuminated the victim's head. Once the victim was lulled into a relaxed state, someone smashed him with a hammer, then finished the job by smashing in their temples and slitting their throat. Bodies were dumped in the cellar to rot or left in fields during the winter months. So the Benders slept in this cabin, though. Yeah. I mean, clearly, Ma Benders, yes. you know, saw in logs, right? Yes. So. I guess you get nose blind? I guess. I don't know, one of them smells they just got used to. When Benjamin Brown was found, he was identified by his silver ring. Then a man informed Leroy Dick that he was sure he had seen one of Benjamin Brown's horses in Arkansas around the time of his disappearance. A larger theory started coming together that the Benders were not working alone. Gebhardt's long disappearances likely meant he was fencing stolen goods. This also meant the Benders had accomplices. Suspicion was cast on other Germans, and some men grumbled about the Benders' neighbor, Rudolf Brockman. Then, George Longcore was found with his skull smashed and throat slit, same as the other victims. At his feet, half hidden by his legs, was the body of 18-month-old Marianne Longcore. Oh, and she was still wearing her mittens, I bet. Tucked in a knitted blanket, still wearing her dress and mittens, there were no signs of injury on her body, and the doctor concluded Marianne was buried alive. Oh, man. Men removed their hats, and a hushed silence, save for the cries of onlookers, fell over the orchard. The next day, the newspaper printed directions to the cabin, and soon the crowd swelled from all directions. Eight bodies were recovered on the farm. One was wedged upright six feet down the well and was so badly mutilated a cause of death was never precisely determined. 
Six of the other seven bodies were identified almost immediately. The last body, that of James Feerick, wasn't identified for another year. Along with the body of William Jones in Drum Creek, the identified corpse from the campsite, and the mutilated body of John Phipps, the Bender's list of known victims totaled 11 men, one child, although it's almost certain there were more who went undiscovered. The crowd of people camping at the Bender farm became unmanageable. Speculation of a criminal network was turning into accusations as the crowd of spectators started angrily bickering. When Rudolph Brockman returned to the Bender farm later that evening, local gossip pegged him as a close friend to the Benders. An enraged, drunken mob swarmed Brockman, pulled him violently from his saddle, and forcibly dragged him inside the Bender cabin. As Brockman screamed of his innocence, the neighbors he once called friend strung a noose around his neck, threw it over a beam, and abruptly yanked him into the air. Brockman kicked his feet, swinging and choking to death while the group shouted, Confess! Confess! The mob let him down. Brockman was silent, so they hauled him back up, shouting, Confess! This happened several more times until Brockman went limp and was pronounced dead. All because he was the neighbor. Because he was the neighbor and he was German. And lynch moms are scary. Minutes later, Brockman gasped back to life. Okay, I did not. He see regained that con- no. It, he regained consciousness and managed to get the hell out of there with his life. And also, fuck those people. I mean, I know. That's come f- on. Fucking terrifying. Like. Is this, yeah, never mind. Ten miles back west at the York house, William York was laid to rest, and Alexander York vowed to find the killers. Within a week, the Bender murder farm was national news, and the disparity in truth between all the papers telling the story was staggering. A volatile mixture of facts, hearsay, and fan fiction. In some versions of the story, the Bender cabin was a luxurious roadside <laughs> inn where 50 victims were found. Descriptions of Kate Bender varied from angelic, busty frontier to uh, angelic, busty frontier vixen to wretched, disgusting hag. (laughs) Pretty on on the outside, horrible on the inside. (laughs) Kate Bender became the focal point of the stories, which makes sense because she's the one most people interacted with, and very few people challenged the narrative put forth by papers. Ma and Pa Bender were barbaric savages from the mountains of Germany, capable only of violence. Gebhardt was a giggling, Bible-obsessed simpleton, capable only of stealing and fencing horses. Their words, not ours. Yeah, their words, not ours, yes. Kate Bender, therefore, was the mastermind of terror who whipped the family into her evil plan. Kate Bender completely undermined and demoralized the values and concept of a safe domestic home, and she became recognized as a perversion of womanhood. Papers derided her as a child of the devil, a pretender, a sorceress, and a fiend. In the months to follow, dozens of stories came out from men and women who'd visited the cabin and left abruptly after shit got weird. Most claimed and they to were have lucky. Fe- and yeah, they were lucky. They were basically. damn lucky. Well, and they all claimed to have felt a presence or danger lurking, and they trusted their instinct to get the hell out of there. 
On May 10th, a local train announced special pricing for tickets to see the, quote, bloody bender slaughter pen. Man. A competing train followed suit, and soon the trains were packed to swelling capacity, stopping a couple miles outside of the bender's farm to drop people off and go check it out. People fought and clamored and jockeyed for position. Every visitor felt duty-bound to take something from the farm. And when there was nothing left to take from within the cabin itself, people started hacking chunks off the building. The next day, people arriving on the train were bombarded by peddlers selling Bender Murder Farm collectibles. Was, was this... Was this like the 1870s version of true crime podcasts? I mean, like... Get your Bender slaughter pen relics. I've got them right here for you. Wow. So as the days went by, Alexander York strong-armed the district attorney into issuing mass arrest warrants. York wanted to arrest everyone he thought suspicious and ask questions later. Let me tell you, what a shit show. Nearly a dozen people are arrested among them a traveling preacher who York didn't like, opposing religion, a young couple with children who once attended a seance at the Bender Farm, and James Roach. Remember him, the saloon owner in Lador? So he had Roach and all of Roach's sons and son-in-laws arrested while deputies ransacked everyone's homes, and it was alleged York's crew offered bribes in exchange for damning testimony. I really wanted to like him. I did. I know. I really wanted to like him. I mean, he was one bad move. Alexander York's fall from grace after that was massive, and being a celebrity politician, papers didn't hold back on him. Not only did he let the benders go, now York was simply arresting people he didn't like. By the end of June, everyone arrested was released, and York swore his men, along with Detective Beers, were close on the trail of the Bender family. Meanwhile, now this is back when they're searching the Bender Farm, okay? It was early May, somewhere north of the Arkansas River, when Kate, Benhart, Kate Bender and Gebhardt jumped off their train. They traveled through Indian Territory toward the town of Stonewall in the Chickasaw Nation. Now, the two had plenty of money, and they purchased a wagon, a team of horses, and a small arsenal of guns. Kate swapped her colorful patchwork skirt for men's clothes, uh, men's clothes, pushed her hair up, and acted like a man. Kate and Gebhardt eventually arrived at the border town of Denison, Texas, where they set up camp on the northern edge of town to await the arrival of Ma and Pa. Denison, Texas was lively. It had an opera house, three churches, and the first public schoolhouse in Texas. New buildings were going up on Main Street almost daily. Although Kate avoided town, she still caught the eye of Albert Owens, owner of a boarding house across from the Bender camp. Gebhardt picked up work with the railroad laborers mostly to listen to their chatter, and no, and nobody was talking about the Benders. When Ma and Pa arrived from Missouri without incident, Gebhardt had a chat with Albert Owens, telling Owens that his family intended on heading west. Albert Owens was shocked. West of Denison was lawless and ruled by a colony of fugitives. During the exchange, Gebhardt specifically told Owens their family name was Bender, waited for his reaction, and when he got none, Gebhardt was confident nobody was looking for them. So a lawless land is exactly what they want. Yes. They're, they're looking for that. Yep. 
At sundown, in the cover of night, the benders left Denison. They were joined by an accomplice, the psychopath Frank McPherson, a wanted murderer with a $500 bounty on his head. York hired Colonel Charles Peckham, a Civil War vet and reputable attorney, to lead the search for the benders. So it was Peckham and Beers who set off for Thayer in mid-May. In Thayer, they interviewed the ticketing agent who helped the benders, which confirmed Beers' suspicion the benders took off right after first meeting Alexander York. What really stood out to the agent was the bender's dog-hide traveler's trunk. No. Yeah, dog-hide trunk, still with the hair on it. Man, I've been, yeah. away, from my, I've been away from my pets for four days. Like, Following wow. the trail to Humboldt, Peckham and Beers pieced together the bender plan to head to Texas. Peckham wired the train station at Denison, but no one matching the bender's description was seen on the train. The governor's proclamation with a $2,000 reward for the capture of the benders was publicly released on May 17th. It included a description of each family member. Ma and Pa Bender were easier to track, particularly because of their disgusting doghide trunk. Beers learned that Kate spoke of an aunt who ran a boarding house in Missouri, which is exactly where Ma and Pa went. They were long gone by the time Peckham and Beers arrived. But Pa's sister told authorities the benders left in the middle of the night once their crimes became public. Then the search stalled, mostly because nobody wanted to or could afford to fund the operation. Alexander York privately funded Peckham and Beers, but there was only so much he could pay for. Plus, it was going to take a lot more than two men to capture the benders. Newspapers decried a cheap, ineffective government that was unwilling to financially commit to capturing the killer family. Just when the leads dried out, Albert Owens showed up to Harmony Grove and told Leroy Dick of his interaction with the Benders outside Denison, Texas. But it was already weeks after the fact when Owens saw the governor's proclamation and delivered that info. So that's what that's what made him go to yep. Missouri. Okay. He saw the proclamation and was like, oh shit, I saw those people. Maybe I can okay. get some money out of this. So Owen's info confirmed the benders were heading deep into outlaw territory. Peckham and Beers were sent in pursuit. It was late May when the benders reached Red River Station, the last somewhat civilized city on the trail. By now it was no secret to the public who the benders were and what crimes they were accused of, but nobody at Red River Station really seemed to give a shit. At Red River Station, the benders stayed with William McPherson, Frank's older brother, better known as Missouri Bill a desperado, cattle thief, and murderer who stood six foot three inches tall. Bill knew the Bender family, and it was in his best interest they didn't get caught because Bill was one of their longtime accomplices, part of an extended outlaw network the Benders were connected to. The McPherson brothers were lifelong criminals from an otherwise good, well-to-do family. The two brothers made a career of thievery, bootlegging, and fencing stolen goods, and their activity extended through Colorado, Kansas, Indian Territory, Missouri, and Texas. Now, unbeknownst to outside authority, Bill's influence controlled the local sheriff. It was the sheriff who tipped off Missouri Bill that detectives were in Denison and hot on the Bender's trail. 
The McPhersons suggested heading back north across the Red River into Chickasaw Nation rather than continue westward. The Benders agreed, packed their wagon, and left with Frank McPherson. Back in Denison, Beers and Peckham were again out of money, aimlessly waiting for funding so they could continue. The governor finally came through on May 24th and provided $500 with strict instructions for how it was to be spent, but they were already at least a week behind the benders. En route to Red River Station, Peckham and Beers asked questions of everyone they encountered along the way and learned the benders were traveling with Frank McPherson. They'll be at Missouri Bill's place, a cattle hand told them. Beers and Peckham were surprised to be met by Missouri Bill at the entrance to Red River Station. Even more surprising, Bill's hospitality. These guys were not prepared for the level of duplicity in play. Bill smooth-talked them and promised to find out where the benders were, and after spending a few days pretending to be helpful, Missouri Bill told Peckham and Beers he could take him to the bender camp for a fee. So this was it, thought Peckham. We've got him. Peckham wrote the governor, telling him, Missouri Bill's going to help us. We're going to arrest the benders. He requested backup. The governor wrote back and tried to warn Peckham that Missouri Bill was not to be trusted, but the local sheriff intercepted the letter. Oh, come on. Yeah. Peckham and Beers spent the rest of their money on horses, supplies, and enough weapons to fight a small army before setting off into the frontier with Missouri Bill. For several weeks, Bill led them into the wild, refusing to tell exactly where the Bender campsite was. Then he started disappearing for days at a time. And then, when Peckham and Beers were hopeless miles from civilization, Missouri Bill abandoned them there. Instead of becoming... Heroes of the frontier, Beers and Peckham got played. It was a staggering embarrassment. Summer was nearly over. Peckham returned to his law practice. Beers remained in Texas. To his credit, Detective Beers was persistent, and he never gave up. At Red River Station, Beers learned of an outlaw camp at Mud Creek to the north in Chickasaw Nation. According to his report, there were 10 people and four Native Americans, and among the white folks were the McPhersons and the Benders. Beers hired a Native guide to lead him to the camp, but it was vacated by the time he got there. Beers tracked the Bender outlaws all the way to Henrietta and Clay County, places truly on the outskirts of civilization, areas where federal authorities were still fighting pitched battles against indigenous tribes. At this point, Authorities knew the Benders were traveling in an armed outlaw caravan and knew their approximate whereabouts, but no state authority was willing to commit the manpower to rooting them out. Efforts to capture the Benders came to a total halt until the spring of 1874 when a relatively unknown man by the name of James Sullivan convinced the governor to fund his effort to capture the Benders. Sullivan pursued the outlaws deep into Colorado, where he learned their camp was located 200 miles west of Los Animas in the Rocky Mountains. But Sullivan couldn't muster a force to confront them. Then Sullivan devised a new plan. He wrote directly to Missouri Bill, offering a pardon for Bill and his brother if Bill did the right thing. Pushing further into 1874, the Bender gang was constantly on the run, the size of their group always in flux. 
They were camped at a bend along the Red River called Prairie Dog Corner, and war is raging throughout the region. And the Benders exploited that by trading weapons and ammunition with Native American war parties in exchange for good horses. Now, things by this time are going pretty bad for Missouri Bill. As federal influence and the rule of law pushed further west, Bill did time in jail for selling untaxed liquor. Then he got a letter from Sullivan. To Sullivan's surprise, Missouri Bill agreed to help him so long as he got the pardon up front and, quote, a deed of money once the benders were caught. He knew exactly where their camp was. Sullivan agreed to meet Bill deep into Indian territory in the small town of Caddo on December 10, 1874. From Caddo, Missouri Bill led Sullivan toward Henrietta, and Sullivan was beaming with such confidence he wrote Governor Osborne asking permission to parade one of the, quote, bender ghouls through the streets during their return trip to Kansas. He wanted to have an arrest parade. And that was the final time anyone ever heard from James Sullivan. Sullivan was last seen leaving Henrietta with Missouri Bill. Weeks later, Missouri Bill returned alone. Now get this, Sullivan was so close closer than he realized. And the Benders got word that a fancy clothed detective was in town and Gebhardt wanted to get himself a look. He intentionally went into town, not even in costume, and crossed paths with James Sullivan at the general store and Sullivan had no idea. After Sullivan went missing, authorities gave up on ever finding the Benders, although newspapers never gave up on printing Bender-related stories. By 1875, in the wake of the Red River War, the Bender clan was pushing west, staying supplied through trade with Missouri Bill and other accomplices like Samuel Merrick. Merrick was a longtime liaison to the Bender outlaws. He was key in helping to make trades, fence stolen goods, sending and receiving messages and information. Merrick was definitely a criminal, but he wasn't a scumbag murderer. It's also likely he was hopelessly in love with Kate Bender. Merrick brought word that Missouri Bill was dying of pneumonia. Frank, his brother, shrugged that news off and told Merrick, we need weapons and ammo. We've got a deal going on here with the Indians. The next morning, the Benders were arguing over where to go, south into Mexico, further west or north into Colorado. Merrick left to bring word to Bill, but when he arrived back at Fort Sill, it turned out Missouri Bill was dead. He died of pneumonia while in federal custody. Merrick kept his promise to help arrange the deal and rode to Red River Station where he met with Bill's wife. She agreed to do this final arrangement for Frank and the Benders. When last Merrick made camp with the Bender outlaws, Kate Bender was miserable, tired of being dirty, tired of being on the run. Whatever end game Kate had in mind, this wasn't it. After that, the seasons gave way to years. Authorities such as Leroy Dick and Governor Osborne moved on from their posts, left with the feeling the benders would never be brought to justice. A popular rumor swept over the prairie. After Alexander York's meeting with the benders, Ed York stormed the cabin and slaughtered the family and dumped their bodies into the churning rapids of the Vertigris River. 
1877, horse thief and longtime Bender associate Samuel Merrick was caught in Texas with 10 stolen horses. Merrick was brought in after a dramatic chase and arrested by former Buffalo soldier Robert Pettis. The chase culminated in a standoff at an isolated farm deep in Texas. Merrick was eventually sentenced to one year for each stolen horse and two years hard labor for assaulting an officer. After the labor term in Texas, he was transferred north to the Detroit House of Corrections. Now, Merrick was a likable storyteller, and he quickly became a favorite inmate of the warden. Eventually, Samuel Merrick revealed to the warden everything he knew about the Benders, and the Bender story was national news. Everyone knew something about the Bender Death Hotel. The warden was so impacted by Merrick's revelations, he wrote a letter to the governor of Kansas and to the Pinkerton Detective Agency. This was in 1879. Imagine the warden's shock when he received a letter in return from the Pinkerton Agency telling him the benders are dead. And the Pinkertons gave strict orders to keep that information a secret. No further details were given. Nicholson thought that was suspicious, so he wrote to the Kansas governor again, and the governor still wasn't sold. So he requested Nicholson thoroughly, officially interview Merrick. Samuel Merrick went on to provide elaborate details, right down to the mile on the movements of the Bender clan, outposts they hold up in, as well as first names, aliases, and surnames. Merrick also gave a clear warning that pursuing the Bender clan would be a dangerous task in unforgiving territory. Well, Nicholson was like, well, that shouldn't be a problem. He got soldiers stationed in forts all over down there. But Merrick shook his head, telling the warden, the soldiers will not fight. I've been scouting with them more than once, and they won't do it. Something that stuck out to me was Merrick's persistent emphasis that Kate Bender hated life on the run. It was a topic Kate brought up each time Merrick visited the outlaws. Kate wanted a better life. When the Kansas governor seemed uninterested in pursuing the benders, Merrick wrote one final appeal. It was a highly detailed account, which, over time, was used to corroborate existing knowledge of the bender whereabouts, their crimes, and accomplices. Allegedly, while in prison, was when Merrick learned the true extent of the bender's crimes, and that's when he agreed they deserved to hang. Merrick openly offered his personal assistance to track the Bender clan. Quote, whoever goes will have to be a good frontier man and understand the Indian ways and will have to rough it. The only way to take them without a big fight will be to get in with them and then drug them. It can easily be done in their coffee. I could do it. No effort was ever mustered in response to Samuel Merrick's offer. Texas wanted no part of sending soldiers after the benders, and neither did Kansas. It was too costly, too far, and too dangerous. It was an insurmountable task. Samuel Merrick completed his sentence in 1880, said his goodbyes, and disappeared into obscurity. On an official level, the benders were all but forgotten. Rumors swirled across the prairie. The benders were murdered by their fellow outlaws. Oh no, they were lynched by the Yorks. Oh no, they were killed by a Pinkerton Vigilance Committee. 
For other prairie folk, the benders were an obsession, a mystery that could be solved and lead to great fortune, you know, like the treasure of One-Eyed Willie. (laughs) That's where Francis McCann comes in. Francis, a wild, eccentric frontier woman who believed she had psychic powers, dedicated four years of her life in pursuit of the Bender women. Hang on, I feel like, you know, for our, our young listeners, One-Eyed Willie, like that's, that's kind of, I mean, the Goonies. The Goonies, right? bro. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure someone's going to review <laughs> us and be like, oh, thanks for, like, you know, explaining that. But Thanks for Don explaining that. <laughs> so, Frances, a wild, eccentric frontier woman, believing she had the powers, dedicates four years of her life. So, while living in Texas, Frances took in a troubled, pretty mother of three named Sarah Eliza Davis. Not long after that, Frances had a dream that told her Sarah Davis was actually Kate Bender. Then, Sarah got sick and feverish, during which time, Frances, who was, quote, guided by influences, hypnotized Sarah with a magnet. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Under the totally scientific legitimacy of magnet hypnosis... Sarah, during fever dreams, confessed to being Kate Bender. I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> good, good old magnet <laughs> hypnosis. That's how you get the confessions. What's your hobby? Magnets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Following the confession, Sarah fled to Michigan with her children. Frances took that as an admission of guilt and abandoned her own family to give pursuit. Frances spent months spying on Sarah, hiding in bushes, watching what she was doing, being weird and following her. And then Frances caught Sarah interacting with an old woman named Elmira Monroe. Obviously, Frances made the connection that Elmira was really none other than Ma Bender. This set off a crazy sequence of events. Frances concocts a scheme to get the women arrested. Almira turns against Sarah, her own daughter, claiming Sarah stole some valuables. Essentially, these two poverty-stricken women were backed into a corner and feeling no other way out, turned against one another, all while Frances McCann accused them of being Kate and Ma Bender. Although most people didn't believe the accusation, it was decided to have Leroy Dick be the judge of that. After seeing a picture of Elmira Monroe, Leroy Dick was certain the woman was Ma Bender. Because she had like the matching bitch face or resting bitch face? bitchy face gave it it away. It was the first thing you noticed. Yeah, she looks angry enough. (laughs) Leroy Dick got on the first train to Michigan. At the jailhouse, Leroy Dick identified, in his mind, Elmira Monroe as Kate Bender. The women go to court for the theft accusations. But the larger story was that they were the Benders. Elmira flat out told the court that her daughter was indeed Kate Bender. But I'm not Ma Bender. Sarah then denied the, <laughs> Sarah denied the accusations and retorted that Elmira was a shit mother who once beat a child to death in the streets and dumped the body in the swamp. And she was Ma Bender, but I wasn't Kate Bender. That's what... When it was all... Yeah. When it was all said and done... Sarah and Elmira were arrested 
and extradited to Kansas to face trial as Ma and Kate Bender. Sarah's three oldest children were dumped at an orphanage while, she, while her baby, still nursing, was allowed to stay with its mother. The country was extremely divided over their identities. Most of Kansas believed the Benders were hunted down and killed by the Vigilance Committee or that the Yorks slaughtered them and dumped their bodies. Alexander York rebutted with an offer of $2,000 for proof of their demise, which only reinforced people's theories that they were already dead. They're like, well, yeah, you're just putting that money up because you know you did it and you hit them. And again, this isn't Midwest math, but like I'm guessing, you know, like $100,000 or $90,000 at that time. It's like, a lot of money. You know, I, yeah, yeah, that's a lot of money. The trial was national news, and heavy-hitting defense lawyer John Towner James took the case pro bono. Before the actual murder trial, an identity trial was held to determine if these women were, in fact, the benders. The trial lasted several days. Under intense pressure, each woman gave their story, outlining lives full of poverty, abuse, and abandonment. Any and every surviving neighbor or person who interacted with the Benders was called as a witness in the identity trial. There were 16 in total, and I shit you not with this math, seven were certain the women were the Benders, seven were certain they were not, and two were completely unsure. And if that's not the perfect way our society is, I don't know what the hell is. (laughs) Shit's still the same when it comes to that, <laughs> right. let me tell you. It's like those are the... the, the no, main... it's them. No, it's not. I don't know. I'm still not sure. The, the, the on... <laughs> so ridiculous. <laughs> the, on, the online uh, um, surveys where they're like, who, who takes the time to say, like, I'm, I'm, I'm just still not sure. I like, don't know. Who takes the time yeah. to do that? In December of 1889, the judge declared there was, quote, enough evidence to hold the women for the murder trial. Defense attorney John Towner James was diligent in his research, and it didn't take long for him to confirm the whereabouts and identities of Sarah and Elmira. The latter was in the Detroit House of Correction and was documented with a house rental in Michigan confirmed by neighbors. Sarah lived in Wildfowl Bay with a husband. She even lost a baby and buried it there, which was corroborated by neighbors and authorities. A few additional notes... Neither woman spoke with a German accent, and although Kate's wasn't very thick, Elmira had no German accent whatsoever, and Sarah did not bear a scar below her eye that Kate Bender was known for. On April 10, 1890, John James filed habeas, habeas corpus proceedings with affidavits confirming their whereabouts and identities, and the case and charges were dismissed. Leroy Dick, to his dying day, held to the belief the documents that solidified their release were fraudulent. The York family never took part in these proceedings, and many interpreted that as evidence the Yorks really did kill the Benders. Privately, Alexander York held strongly to his suspicions the Benders made it out west. One witness claims to have cited them at a camp in Gila, Arizona in 1883. Other reports circulated the Benders were ranching in Colorado. Frank McPherson, a longtime Bender friend, settled in as a resident of Gunnison, Colorado, back in 1883. Frank lived out his days as a man eager to fight, 
a willful killer who didn't hold back. He went on to become a violent strike breaker and murdered a few people during the 1900s Colorado strikes. If the Benders were still alive by the time Frank McPherson made it to Colorado, it's most likely that's where they finally settled. But any information Frank might have held in relation to their whereabouts went with him to the grave in 1917. Author Laura Ingalls Wilder once claimed her family stopped at the Bender cabin on the way to Little House. This was later proven to be untrue. In 1911, during a very rare interview, Alexander York said, quote, There would have been no reasons not to disclose it had we done so, because it would have been considered a laudable act at the time. No one knows what truly became of the Benders. Historians are somewhat divided over their final fate, killed by the Yorks, lynched by a vigilance committee, murdered and left for dead by outlaws in the Wild West, or is it possible, after years of running, the young benders took their nest egg and used it to hide in plain sight? A known alias of Kate Bender documented in one of her ad circulars was none other than Katie Bender. The federal... It's the same, it's the same fucking name. Kate and Katie are not the same name. <laughs> Technically, it's... Look, my daughter's name is Kate. Sometimes she's called Katie. Like, it's the same fucking name. Okay. I'm not going to split hairs over it. <laughs> God. I, I can't with this one. I'm just... Oh, my gosh. The federal census of 1880 lists a Katie and Joseph Bender as residing at the mountain town of Buena Vista, Colorado. Both are reported as being German-born and both have holes in their history that coincide with the murders and both appear in Colorado nearly a decade after the Bender murder farm. Joseph Bender died in 1888. Katie Bender went on to run a successful tavern for many years. Prior to her death, she purchased real estate in Newcastle, Aspen, and several other Colorado towns, traveled abroad to see the World Fair, and often wintered in Mexico. Katie Bender was known to be very outspoken about women's rights and many other political topics that most women avoided, and she once concluded an interview with the quote, Love thy neighbor as thyself, and will have fewer grown-up murderers. So I'm assuming Joseph is is giggle guy, right? Like, I don't know. It's although it's entirely possible the couple was Kate Bender and John Gebhardt. Historians are reluctant to claim it as fact, but we have to wonder: what are the odds of? Two German Katie Benders with hazel eyes, auburn hair, and a scar below their left eye. The Bloody Benders are America's first recognized family of serial murderers, and their story is considered one of the greatest mysteries of the frontier. Now, there's a ton of information out there about the Bloody Benders, and not all of it is quality source. This episode is sourced from the book Hell's Half Acre by Susan Jonasas. 
Re she released that book in March of 2022, and it is the definitive and most comprehensive telling of the Bender story. Susan worked tirelessly through historical records, family tellings, books, memoirs, letters, and communications. Her work is an extraordinary culmination of information that separates fact from fiction. I hate when you do these old stories. There's never, like, I just never, I never, it's never wrapped up in a bow. Never. And you see that romanticism on the front end get tied into the back end with the, oh, maybe they got away and shit, they probably did. Well, and... Did humans just not have compassion in the 1800s? Well, like, I mean, I know life was shitty, but there was absolutely no compassion. It was a like, little I sparse. Mean, and, and so, I mean, is that part of our, our growth as humans? Is that, you know, did, I, I don't know. I, I mean, certainly hope so. And, and who's associating with these people? Like, that, like, that's a good choice, right? Like People who think Kate's hot. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Mostly like. That's fair. I mean, she was showing, a, she was showing her calves. Showing them ankles. I mean, wow. Additional sources for this episode of Midwest Murder, truewestmagazine.com, kansasmemory.org, centerofthewest.org, history.com, and onthisday.com for the timeline. Midwest Murder is hosted by myself, Joan Alanto, and Don Palumbo. This episode is written by me, Joan Alanto, and man, Fargo, it's been a damn glad, yes. damn good time. Thank you so yeah. much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.